Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we leverage science and technology to protect endangered species and ecosystems around the world. So welcome to this month's episode of Conservation Conversations. I'm Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, and I'm super happy to be here this month with uh, one of the great scientists of the world, Dr. Healy Hamilton, who is NatureServe's chief scientist. Welcome, Healy. Thank you so much, Sean. It's really awesome to be in the Conservation Conversation slot. Excellent. So uh, just for a background for people, Healy, as I said, is our chief scientist, and she's a biodiversity scientist with graduate degrees from Yale and the University of California at Berkeley, and uh, has extensive uh, field experience in tropical areas, uh, the forests and rivers of Latin America, where she did some really cool research on river dolphins and other things. And she leads our teams of all the ologists, the zoologists, the botanologists. I know that's not a word, but I always want the botanists to feel like they're an ologist too. Um, and our conservation data scientists. And of course, um, may not know this because NatureServe doesn't work on these uh, taxa, but Healy is one of the world's leading experts on seahorses and pipefish, which is really exciting. And maybe we can touch on that a little bit uh, in this conversation, even though we're focusing on a different aspect of Healy's work, where she was the lead on a project that we did with the NatureServe network called the Map of Biodiversity Importance. And this has been featured recently in the New York Times and is a publication that's out there in the world for people to read. And so, you know, we call it the Map of Biodiversity Importance. We sometimes shorten that to MOBI, but we try not to do that too often because there's too many acronyms in the world already, and acronyms are not an endangered species. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so, Healy, tell us a little bit about what the Map of Biodiversity Importance is, and then I want to also have you talk about, like, why, like, so the map has its own importance, but why was it important to pursue this line of research? Sure. Let me explain a little bit what we set out to do here. You know, our nation is really a large place and there are a lot of activities on the ground that are going on there, right? We have human population, we have agriculture, we have forestry, we have fisheries, we have all kinds of activities on the ground. We're squeezing out where uh, the rest of the diversity of life is able to coexist. So we need to be able to prioritize where conservation actions are going to have the most impact on preventing extinctions. And we've done this type of mapping, our community has done this type of mapping in the past at very broad sort of core scales. So sort of big blobs, like the California Floristic Province is a hotspot, but that's most of the state of California. And the Eastern Coastal Plain of, of North America, like that's a hotspot and it covers like, half of seven or eight states. We need precise information about where conservation can be the most effective. And so also in the past, we've really only worked with a few groups of mostly animals, sometimes trees, but birds, mammals, and amphibians have been uh, sort of the flagship taxonomic groups that we've used for understanding where our conservation priorities are. What about all the flowering plants? What about the ferns? What about 
the mussels and the crayfish? What about the bees and the butterflies that, that pollinate? So the map of biodiversity importance set out to transform our understanding of the spatial resolution for conservation, the precision with which we can apply conservation on the ground to protect the broadest diversity of species. So the map of biodiversity importance, which we affectionately call MOBI sometimes, is a unprecedented map of imperiled species distributions that has more different kinds of species and is mapped at higher resolution, 30 meter resolution here, than any other conservation mapping effort that has happened in our country previously. So I want to back up for one second because 30 meter resolution, what we're talking about is more or less a hundred foot grid across the entire lower 48 states. And that's the resolution at which we're making these predictions or guesses as to where there is appropriate habitat for these species, which is phenomenal and unprecedented. But it also points out, reminds me that we did this, we were able to do this because we were able to work with you know, more than a thousand scientists across the NatureServe network. We worked with ESRI, the creators of the GIS software. Uh, we worked with the Nature Conservancy of California and with Microsoft's AI for Earth programs. And so we were able to leverage the knowledge and the technology and the skills of lots of people. And that's, I think, one of the things that's special about NatureServe is as these conveners of scientists and data and consolidators of all of this information, we're able to do things that are special out there in the world. And so now you're gonna tell us, you know, so now we have this great map. What did, what did the map tell us? What, what, what were we able to tell by taking all of these, you know, there's individual stories for individual species that are really interesting, but there's also a story of sort of the picture of biodiversity in America that the, the stacking up of the 2200 models created. That's right. Because we were working at unprecedented spatial resolution and across a unprecedented diversity of the different types of imperiled species we were talking about, the crayfish, the mussels, the pollinators, the plants, as well as the vertebrates, we were able to reveal patterns of imperiled biodiversity across the lower 48 states of the U.S., at a resolution that has never been possible before. And we identified places all over this country where imperiled biodiversity it is concentrated, where we have concentrations of species that are at risk of becoming extinct. And it becomes all of our collective responsibility to all of our benefits to be able to know where these places are so that we can you know, really assess their value to us and determine how we want to protect these areas uh, and, and the, the biodiversity that is found within them. So no one has ever attempted at this resolution, this type of imperiled plant analysis. And that was completely revealing. There are all kinds of places in the desert Southwest and in the Colorado Plateau that pop out as hotspots of imperiled plant biodiversity that simply weren't on our radar at this sort of national scale before. I mean, certainly the Colorado Natural Heritage Program has amazing botanists 
and they know what's going on in the state of Colorado. But when you take the larger view of being able to look across all of the Western states, which is sort of the benefit of being nature served, right? The umbrella of this whole natural heritage network where we get to work with the data across all of the states, work with the expert across all of the states, we get a bigger picture of what's going on sort of at that satellite view. And we're able to see how those hotspots of plant biodiversity in Colorado flow into New Mexico, flow into Utah, right? You can see the patterns across the desert Southwest at, in ways we never have been able to, to before. The Northern Sierra Nevada of California, Lake Wales Ridge in Florida is just this astonishing hotspot that uh, now that we've identified them, we, uh, we can work with different agencies and organizations that are out to help conserve the biodiversity of America that are working more on the ground. So what you were just saying, I think, is really important because we've created not not a roadmap because this is actually a map of biodiversity and where there are concentrations of threatened and imperiled species. And therefore, this can help us prioritize where the federal government and all the federal agencies, state governments, local governments and environmental organizations can concentrate efforts to protect the most biodiversity and we work, NatureServe works with, and you work with a lot of these agencies. So how, how is the map of biodiversity importance figuring into work that's being done to protect biodiversity now? So we are having a moment in conservation, not just in this country, but on the planet. There is a movement, a global movement right now that dozens of countries have signed on to, to conserve 30% of the lands and waters of this of the, our planet by 2030. So the movement is called 30 by 30. The state of California signed on to it during the Trump administration and the Biden administration right away signed on to the global movement for 30 by 30. Which we call America the Beautiful, just if anybody's looking for it. That's right. It's uh, It has been labeled America the Beautiful. It is an interagency effort across the federal government. And uh, and so this map can feed into an effort like that and help states, help nonprofits, help federal agencies, many of whom manage land for biodiversity conservation and recreation, like wilderness areas of the Forest Service or most areas of the National Park Service. But many of our federal agencies manage tens of millions of acres that are called multiple use lands where many different activities are permitted. And the map of biodiversity importance actually pinpoints areas of, of high significance for imperiled biodiversity, areas that we want to conserve that fall within these multiple use areas of the Bureau of Land Management, our nation's largest landowner, or the US Forest Service, our nation's second largest landowner. So we're trying to help federal agencies understand where they might modify the current land use policies and lean in more towards conservation, help the Biden administration and, and all of us reach the goal of 30% of, of our lands and waters protected by 2030. And the map of biodiversity importance is an essential tool in achieving that goal in a way that matters for biodiversity. Because we could just conserve 30% of rocks and ice and call it good, and then biodiversity is going to continue to decline. We don't want that. 
right. to happen. So um, I feel like we've given people a little teaser on on the map of biodiversity importance and there's like we could talk literally for hours and there are a couple of uh talks online that people could uh watch that are recorded where you're talking about uh, very specific examples um of moby and of course people should come to the nature serve website to see some of the maps that we've been talking about and to read about the importance of this research and go to the multi uh multi-page publication peer-reviewed publication that is out now um and it was published in remind me it's a journal called ecological applications and that and that's very fitting because this is this is applied work that is out there to benefit the ecology of our country and the paper is available open source so people anyone can uh, get access to it that's right also um if you look in the New York Times, there's an article by Katrin Einhorn and Nadia Popovich about the map of biodiversity importance, and people should look at that. But before um, I let you go, Healy, I have a couple of other things I want to ask you about. Certainly. Um, one is a little bit of a, a devil's advocate question. Um, so there's all these rare species, and a lot of them are single-site endemics, and they only exist in one very small area. Who cares if they go extinct? What does it what does it matter? Yeah. Who cares if that happened to be the plant that had the drug compound that could have, you know, turned different cancers into remission, as happened with a plant that was near extinction uh, in Madagascar for childhood leukemia? You know, who cares if that single site endemic has the genes in it that can help citrus crops face resistance to freezing or to drought. I mean, biodiversity is an inspiration for so much of our engineering solutions, for so many of our medical solutions, for so many of our agricultural needs. And that's just thinking about the utility of biodiversity, not our moral obligation as sentient beings to protect the diversity of life on this planet from which we came and upon which we depend. So, you know, if if you want to if you want a car to run, do you start taking the parts and throwing them out the door and just hoping that the car is going to run, even though it's missing, you know, the O-ring that puts together the transmission with the. I'm not a mechanic. I can't follow through on this. How about thing, a sports analogy? <laughs> that'll be even worse for me. You you need you know what was it was the one of the most famous sayings in response to this type of question came from um, Aldo Leopold who's right you know an intelligent tinkerer keeps all of the parts mm. right we want to keep all of the parts that's a, a a hack on a saying that of a quote of Aldo Leopold's that's much used in response to this kind of a question and it's similar to Paul Ehrlich's comment about the rivets on the airplane you, there's a lot of rivets on an airplane. And you can pull a whole bunch of them off, but eventually you pull one out and the wing falls off. And we just don't know which species is that rivet that's going to cause cause the wing to fall off and an ecosystem to collapse or you know something more terrible than that. So I think that's great. That's 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 what I was hoping for from you at that moment. <laughs> um, and you used the word inspiration in that answer. Nature is an inspiration for us in solving problems. And I wanted to know what inspired you to follow your career path. I was very lucky to grow up with a mother who was on the board of every environmental nonprofit and even started a couple. It, this was in the era where 
saving saving whales and dolphins was like the most important thing, right? The Marine Mammal Protection Act had recently passed and my mom helped start an organization called Save the Whales. And we actually went to Baja, California to fight against Mitsubishi Corporation that was gonna put salt plants in the areas where the gray whale calves are, are bred and born. And so she was a passionate environmental advocate but the interesting thing is I was never encouraged to pursue science. It's the last thing in the world I would have thought of becoming was a, is a scientist. It wasn't until my sophomore year in college. Like I went, I entered college as a poli sci major, just having never been encouraged or known anyone who was a scientist. I thought I really like to argue. So I'm going to be an environmental attorney. Uh, and then in my sophomore year in college, I took this non-science majors course called Ecology and Man. And the first day, the professor stood up and talked about all the world's global environmental problems. And I literally sprinted down to the registrar's office, having no idea what I was getting myself into, changed my major to ecology, not even really knowing that much what it was. But I, I never looked back after that. Just the idea of understanding the science of how to conserve the diversity of life is what has driven me for the entire rest of my career. That's awesome. Um, so from that, the sort of follow on question is, you know, in many years, when you look back on your career, what what will you hope to have accomplished through through all of your incredibly hard labors? Well, those hard labors are all labors of, of love and deep commitment, so they don't feel as hard, perhaps. I think there's two things that I, I use to sort of determine the metric of my, my value as a human being on the planet. And one of them is, will there be more intact nature than there otherwise would have been because because of my career, because of because of what I've been able to do uh, as a as a scientist, and particularly as chief scientist at NatureServe, which has been a significant portion of my career so far, and I already feel that the answer to that is yes. And Moby was just published last month. The map of biodiversity importance is is a bit of a capstone, and it will lead, I expect, to more intact nature that already is in place uh, because of, of our efforts. So, so that really is for me, the, a, a huge measure is like, is there more intact nature because, because of the professional commitment that, that I've made to conservation. And I feel good about where that trajectory is, is headed. The awesome. second measure is the mentor, my, my role as a mentor. So uh, I have had the great pleasure of, of being a mentor and sponsor of, uh, well, I don't know, close to a dozen students with now master's PhDs now working in their professions, most of them women and most of them from Latin America. And so that contribution of supporting a next generation of, of scientists who understand, appreciate, and are dedicated to biodiversity is also like one of the single most important ways that I, I measure the value of, of my contribution to my career. You know, I would add to that, not just the students that you've worked with specifically in that capacity, but all of the scientists at NatureServe, especially many of the younger scientists, many of whom, as you pointed out, are women, um, who you're also 
currently mentoring, but not in a student capacity, but in a in a work capacity. And um, I think that is inspiring a lot of people here at NatureServe as well, both at the NatureServe organization as well as out in the network. So thank well, you for that thank work. You. Too. That's 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 very kind. It's it's a benefit of leadership and a responsibility of leadership. Uh, and I love my role as chief scientist of this organization. Great. And, you know, you also inspired another thing. Uh, you inspired me to get scuba certified recently, if only so that I can go scuba diving with you at least one time so you can show me some seahorses in their natural habitat. So tell me a little bit about your, your love of seahorses and how many species you've discovered and things like that. It is so awesome that you got dive certified and you can come underwater and look for seahorses, which requires incredible amounts of patience and hopefully very low draw on your oxygen, right? On, on your air tank, right? Really, really good control. I mean, seahorses are some of the world's most fascinating creatures. And uh, even though I'm chief scientist at NatureServe and we don't focus on the marine environment, I had a long history of doing uh, sort of taxonomic and evolutionary work on seahorses and their relatives, the, the pipe fish, the sea dragons, the pipe horses, the pygmy pipe horses, the pygmy seahorses. They're just some of the most fantastical creatures on earth. Uh, and so I have on the side been continuing that work. Your side hustle. My side hustle is to uh, work with an extraordinary group of colleagues to continue to publish new species descriptions like we don't even know how many species of seahorses there are on this planet and yet they're some of the most charismatic animals that are out there and they live in the world's coastal oceans but they're incredibly cryptic really hard to find masters of camouflage uh and and so i i just i'm committed to ocean conservation as well and that's not in the purview of nature serve and so i don't want to I, I couldn't find a way to leave that behind. I love being underwater. I'm a Pisces through and through, and I feel almost more comfortable underwater than on land. I, I just love that sense of floating and flying through those, those three dimensions. Going back and to our you, evolutionary origins as sea creatures, right? Right. Yes, there you go. My, mine seem to be, maybe it's, yeah, that primal brain is a little more, <laughs> more driving me back to the ocean. Uh, and, but they're also um, animals that really help inspire uh, the, the public and governments and, and you know, uh, even fishing organizations to consider how do we conserve our coastal marine resources, right? That we want a world in which seahorses with healthy populations of the full diversity of seahorses. And there's well over 40 different types. And they live in across all the almost all the world's oceans, except for the polar oceans. And they're they're fantastic sort of inspirational symbols of of marine conservation, and then just fascinating to study in in their own right. And so just like keeping that thread of being connected to marine biodiversity and marine conservation, uh, while we also pursue conservation in the lands and freshwaters of North America here at NatureServe. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you do that work too, because it is fun to talk about. Um, and thank you for everything that you've done through your whole career, and especially here at NatureServe, and for continuing to be a, a conservation leader and a spokesperson for, you know, the importance of conservation. You do a great job of sort of explaining why it's important to have 
the diversity of life on the planet with you know specific examples, but also I'm a big believer in sort of the moral and aesthetic component as well as yes. the sort of straight economic and self-serving service to humanity components to it. Um, so I really appreciate all of that. And uh, I enjoy working with you. So thanks for being on the show today. Likewise, Sean, thank you for asking me. And uh, I look forward to continuing to work under your leadership to bring science to conservation and make conservation happen. And uh, that's the first time that Healy hasn't referred to me as SOB. SOB. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Thanks for listening. And we'll uh, check in with you next month on Conservation Conversations. 